0: Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 29. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my doc and the friend, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob.
1: Hello, Joe.
0: I am really excited about today's topic because this is one that has been requested, believe it or not, from listeners and other people who come to me thinking I know something about science. <laughs> and then I tell them, what are you talking to me for? You need to talk to the doctor. And He's the other guy on the show.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to this one, too, because we're going to delve into some really cool early man and how brilliant he was.
0: Yeah. But first, uh, I wanted to ask you, how are you doing? How's all the work going?
1: Well, I'm doing fantastic. Since the last time we talked, I spent, no joke, four days, seven in the morning till 11 at night, doing nothing but analyzing COVID-19, SARS, MERS, and the pangolin, and a couple of bat coronaviruses. Interesting. The um, Chinese defector, uh, Dr. Yan Yan, however you want to say it, she's been going around the talk show circuit for months saying that the Chinese uh, deliberately made this virus and deliberately released it. And you know, that's very controversial, but she finally published a paper, and her and her colleagues, they laid out, this is how it was made, and everything they said is standard laboratory techniques, and they said it would take about six months. Interesting. And they said, here's what they left behind, and here's what they left behind. And as soon as I saw that, my eyes bugged out. See, when I was working on my green fluorescent proteins, I was taking them out of coral, and you'd, you'd amplify that messenger RNA or RNA at this point and convert it into DNA and amplify it with primers that had a restriction enzyme site in it, like CCCGGG or GATCCA. Those are palindromes. They read the same forward and backwards. Oh, Yeah. And there's these, back, well, forward and backwards on different strands of DNA, because DNA is two strands. There are all these bacterial enzymes that will cleave specific palindromes. And there's an entire catalog. I mean, you, you say, I need to cut this set of six letters. And you can order an enzyme that will cut that set of six letters. And they pointed out that right in the most critical spot on COVID-19, the ACE2 receptor that grabs onto the human cells, Not just that, but in a small area, about 200 base pairs wide, right in the middle of it, the part that actually does the grabbing, there's an ECHO-R1 restriction site. That's E. coli restriction enzyme number one. Huh, so it doesn't belong there, right? No. COVID-19 is the only sequence that has it. Now, it's only one or two letters off from the others, but it's pretty easy to toggle a couple letters in a genome like that, and all of a sudden, you can cut that piece of DNA. And on the other side of the important site was a foul one. I don't remember the species of bacteria F something, but um, sure. there's a, a spot that will cut there. So, if you put those two enzymes in there, it will literally clip out that 200 letters and you could put your own cassette in there, add DNA ligase, and you're done. Hmm. And you just swapped out the one thing that's different like, when you look at the other coronaviruses thing is similar to, it's very similar, except in this one spot. And this one spot just happens to have enzyme cleavage sites on either side. So, this is super controversial. Yeah. I am not going to go on record, even we're talking about it, I'm not going to go on record saying that the Chinese government made this virus. Sure. But it's a giant smoking gun.
0: I am curious, though, do you think that it, they knew what, it, it lets, again, I'm, I'm not trying to implicate a particular party for making the thing. But if it was designed, do you think that the people that were making the virus this way understood what it would do? Or do you think it was a custom tailored job and then it got into the wild where they didn't understand what the implications would be and it would only become self-evident once in the field and there were examples of people's symptoms?
1: If this was a custom job, it was deliberately done to have a certain effect and the effect is what we see. Okay. Now, I don't for a second think they intentionally release this. That's step one. Because viruses, they just tend to get out of containment. They're little teeny things. They don't like sure. yeah. know, staying in a little box. We've had a lot of viral releases here in the States. So, and and uh, SARS got out twice from uh, biological laboratories in China. So, they're hard to keep contained. And If someone's working on one, it would be easy to say, oh, whoops, it got out. But these viruses recombine so much. You could just take COVID-19, and he started looking at it said, okay, in this section right here, it's really similar to this other coronavirus from a bat. But over here, it's really similar to the pangolin coronavirus. But over here, it's really similar to SARS. Hmm. In fact, most of it's very similar to SARS, except in these chunks. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they engineered all those chunks, because when you look at all the viruses, they all have random parts of other viruses within them. And so, that is, that the doctors... Weird speculations that this was manufactured is actually following the pattern of the other viruses except it's got those restriction enzyme sites right where they should be if you want to cut it out Hmm. so in the end science as we know you can't prove anything Mm -hmm. and hunches are not science and speculation is not science no yeah but i've worked four and a half days to disprove her thesis i couldn't do it Mm. incredible
0: i have another question Granted, what we know about science. Uh, I'm spitballing here and brainstorming. I don't understand this stuff well enough. Obviously, this is not how we go about these things. We go through channels like medications and antibiotics and vaccines. But the the thought occurs to me. If something can go viral just in the air and by touch and be transmitted that way worldwide in you know, less than six months total, could a virus, could a counter virus be created or a bacteria or something that is carried that would counteract such a thing when we know exactly what makes it tick to attack coronaviruses? And, you know, I'm not saying that this is the right solution, obviously. This is in the realm of hypotheticals. Could that be something that could counter something like a viral infection like this
1: for the case of coronaviruses no because the coronavirus has to infect a cell and they really like human cells you can't like put a pac-man in your veins it's going to eat the coronavirus floating around in your blood right
0: okay that's exactly what i was asking (laughs) yeah
1: maybe someday we'll have you know micro machines like that but the 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 simplest thing is just develop a vaccine so the little machines that are already in our body, the antibodies, will destroy it. That's the, the simplest, honestly. Interesting. We should do a show on coronavirus vaccines or just vaccines.
0: Yes, I want to learn more about allergies, contagions, pandemics in general. Just Again, I'm not trying to make the show about this pandemic. And there's a lot of facets to it and all of them political. We're not really interested in getting into for Equinox. But it's still something that we should know more about whenever there is something that we can understand from a scientific perspective that is, you know, accurate. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about flu season. I'm thinking about some of the allergies that we get hit by between now and November. I've had, I've had days and, uh, just totally on my back from some bad sinus infections and the like, Ear infections over November. It's miserable. Oh, and I'm I sorry, sure, man. I don't want it to interrupt with any kind of, you know, holiday plans. Yeah. And anytime I, I can learn, I want to get ahead of the curve. I want to be aware of these things and take preventative
1: measures. Understood. You know, I used to be anti vax. I'm the only formerly anti-vax person that I know. Interesting, but it, what happened? I, st- I studied myself out of it. Oh, okay. It's all I took each one of the objections I had. Oh, there's mercury in it. Oh, there's aluminum in it. Or there's you know aborted baby parts in it, and I worked my way through each one of those to the point where, yeah, I don't like the fact that they grow some vaccines on uh, cell lineages that came from abortions in the '60s and '80s. But as far as the toxins go. Um, you know, the formaldehyde. I remember as soon as I heard there's formaldehyde in vaccines, I was I'm done. That's it. But no, there's not formaldehyde <laughs> in vaccines. They use formaldehyde <laughs> yeah. to harvest it and then they clean it up and the amount of formaldehyde left over is so tiny, you get more formaldehyde eating a pear like a thousand or more times than you would from an injection of any vaccine. <laughs> so just <laughs> little precious. steps like that. <laughs> I, I had to step my way through each one of these arguments and really it's it's science education is what brought me out of it. Mm. So, I'm not trying to be arrogant, and we probably just browned off a few listeners. In fact, someone might have even turned it off by now, but I'm just saying that that the reason that we're pursuing scientific knowledge is for the betterment of all people.
0: Absolutely. Now, I I do have questions about vaccines, but I'm not an anti-vaxxer.
1: I have lots of questions (laughs) about vaccines.
0: It is an interesting subject, but I do want to get to the main subject for today. We're going to start running out of time, so let's get to it. The main topic for today, Rob. Yes. You and I dedicated some time to ancient technology. To preface this, we talked about Neanderthal technologies not too long ago. A lot of things that ancient man has done... Was that two weeks ago? Yes. Episode 27. There will be a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to get back there. And it would be a good preface to this episode. A lot of the subjects that we've covered thus far have to do with ancient man in general. And one of those things that comes up over and over again is how did they create something incredible thousands of years ago that doesn't make any sense without today's technology yeah. and with what we can do with vehicles, with contraptions that make our lives and our jobs easier. Yeah. And I know of examples where massive stones have been cut just perfectly so and transported across a great distance, and then reassembled by the ancient man, and it 's impossible to understand how did they do that? We don't have enough evidence to conclude how they constructed such a thing. But scientists do have some ideas. Archaeologists do have some ideas, and we love technology. Rob, this is not a subject I know as much about as I would like, so please
1: teach me more.: Then let 's learn The problem here's a problem though: already we're already in a problem. As soon as you start searching for this information on the internet, you get into Weirdsville. And
0: aliens and...
1: Aliens.
0: Conspiracies and time travelers.
1: And Atlantis and pre-Ice Age civilization.
0: Rob, did you start the city of Atlantis yourself? You're really a time traveler, aren't you? (laughs)
1: Actually, what's really funny was just a couple days ago, it's like I needed something half an hour to watch before I went to bed. Just... I just gonna need to chill a little bit. And I clicked on Stargate Atlantis.
0: <laughs> yeah. Perfect material.
1: And I watched, I've, I watched, what, two episodes now. So, like, hey, this isn't too bad. I haven't watched any of Stargates the Stargates because, as we talked about, the, the movie was such horrible, was so bad that I never bothered to watch a series. But hey, this one, this is, looks like a spinoff of the other star, the uh, Stargate, which I never saw either. And it's actually pretty oh, good. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. So, no, I didn't build st- Atlantis. I did what though, when I was in graduate school, there was a, um, a graduate student who had traveled over to Greece on an archaeological project. But see, I was in marine biology school and he was asked to come to an archaeological dig so he could identify the forams that are little teeny microscopic creatures that live in the ocean. Oh, amongst the dirt in this city on the north coast of the Peloponnesus of Greece. Oh, okay. Peloponnesus is that that thing that sticks down below Greece proper. Sparta is there. Corinth is right on the uh, mm-hmm. on the little isthmus there. Well on the north shore of the Peloponnesus there's a there's a, a water body. It's like it looks like a like a finger, really long and skinny. But the southern coast of that is a strike slip fault. And every once in a while the cliff behind the town jumps up a foot or two. And that causes a seismic shockwave <laughs> to go across the Gulf of Corinth, hit the cliffs on the other side, and reflect back and cause tsunamis. And so, they're, they're digging in this, um, this olive grove, and they're, they're, there's a town down there under the dirt. And this town was destroyed by water. The ocean had swept over and just destroyed this whole town. And so, his conclusion was this was Atlantis. Because in the ancient sources, it says it's a temple to Zeus or something. I don't remember the temple, up on the hill. And there's one right there. And he's got all these corresponding things that fit the Atlantis story. Now, of course, everyone and their brother has tried to identify Atlantis. And this is just one more candidate. <laughs> of course. But it was a really cool, really cool thing that he did. Because he's looking at the forams And he's trying to tell what season, what time of year this happened. Based on the water temperature, which would control which of these critters are growing at that time. Oh, wow. And really neat stuff like that. But no, I didn't. I didn't build Atlantis. Sorry.
0: Did y'all confirm that it was Atlantis? Or no? did no, you, you y'all can't. at least give it a
1: name? Uh, uh, No. Hmm. I okay. don't know, you know, several dozens of houses in a little village and where that they were excavating. And since there's no town there now, it's just, just a site. I don't remember the name of it. Intriguing. Yeah. Huh.
0: You'll have to t- write more about it in your memoirs.
1: Maybe, maybe. But after you get past all the Atlantis aliens, pre-Ice Age civilizations, all the, the stuff that people love to say, and it's really interesting, but it's not grounded in any truth. Mm-hmm. After, after you get rid of that, you can actually look at the technology of ancient man. And their technology, though, some of it is exquisitely amazing, and other is just generic. But the ramp was an amazing innovation. The wheel changed the world. Writing. I mean, once people invented writing, the world was different than it was the year before, however long it took to invent really writing, writing.
0: It's really easy to take for granted those awesome, simplistic technologies.
1: Yeah, but these were, I mean, whoever took a clay tablet and a pointy stick and started writing cuneiform, that was like the invention of the internet. That's how groundbreaking that was. And of course, we talked about several times, the cow. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, our favorite technology, the mascot right. of Equinox. It's got to be the cow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, the high technology that moves. So we get all these really cool, awesome little teeny things. And you have to dig really deep to get something that's not mundane like that. And there's a lot of examples out there. One of them is called the Baghdad Battery. It's a Baghdad Battery. It's a, they found this terracotta pot, and inside it was a copper tube. And inside of that was an iron rod, and the copper and the iron were spaced apart with a lump of bitumen, which is just, you know, basically hard solidified oil, black bitumen. Hmm. Well, if you added, I don't know, wine or vinegar or any acidic solution to that, you would get a battery. Wow. Now, what would you do with a battery in ancient Baghdad? (laughs) Hey, guys, we just invented
0: some uh, energy technology.
1: Uh, What are we going to do with it? That's that's the other thing about technology. <laughs> Inventing something is completely worthless if so it has no function. But it is possible that that voltage could be used for electrical stimulation, maybe like an acupuncture sort of thing with electricity or electroplating. If you strung several of these in series, you can get you know three or four volts of of electricity. That's enough to electroplate gold. But I don't think that's a battery. I think it's battery-like, but yeah. similar things have been found that are scroll repositories, a scroll storage oh. jar. And it's like, oh, so maybe it's not a battery at all. And plus, there's no evidence of, um, of electroplating anywhere in the ancient world. They do have gold-covered objects, and there's two ways to cover gold. You could either take gold leaf and pound it down there, or you could do the way that will kill you, and lots of people died because of this, Take mercury, dissolve gold in it, apply it to your thing, and then boil off the mercury, and you'll have gold plating. And you'll go insane because you're in- inhaling the mercury fumes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, This is not known in ancient... Yeah. You know, you know um, Alice in Wonderland, right?
0: Yep. One of the stories I've heard way too many times.
1: Okay. You've heard of the Mad Hatter? Why is a hatter Completely mad? A
0: disturbing fella.
1: Why is he mad?
0: Uh, oh, yes. Because I, he's a hatter. i heard about the hats. Yeah, and the toxins
1: in them, right? Processing felt, they would process it with mercury. And so, one of the occupational hazards of the day, you know, coal miners got black lung and hatters went insane. <laughs> that is disturbing. <laughs> totally disturbing. And so, the the ancient people that were plating things with gold using boiling mercury, um, that would have been a high hazard job. Their lifespan would have been greatly reduced. But if your lifespan is only going to be 30 or 40 years anyway, you know, if you die at 35 of insanity instead of 40 of something else, how do you tell the difference?
0: Nope. You, yeah, what, what difference does it make?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, yuck. Anyway, uh, I, so the Baghdad battery, talked about a lot online. I just don't think it's a battery.
0: Well, and then the other thing, too, about the idea that it is a battery is there's essentially only evidence of one example, right?
1: Um, so why they, would there
0: only be one? Or let's say, let's even grant that there could have been more. Why didn't they, why didn't they last? Why weren't they recorded? Why, why would we not find the technology that the battery was powering if it was what it was?
1: Exactly. However, in the world of inventions, there are some inventions that we know were invented that never caught on. For example, the Romans invented the steam engine. The steam engine wouldn't be invented for another... Fifteen, sixteen hundred 1,600 years, 1,700 yeah. years. Yeah. In, in the first century AD in Alexandria in Roman Greece, I would say Roman Egypt, this guy named Hero of Alexandria described what is a steam engine. He had a pot made of probably copper and he had two tubes coming up and inside the pot was boiling water and the tubes came up and turned at right angles towards each other. And in between them, he had a round thing with two other tubes that bent. And so, as the steam rose vertically and then horizontally into that round thing, it would have to vent through those two little wings. And because the nozzles were angled, a thing would rotate at like 1,500 RPM. Cool. Brilliant. Smart. Yeah. But what do you do with it? What good is steam power when you have slave labor? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what good is steam power if you don't have high tensile steel for cables or enough, um, an, enough good iron to make railroad tie, uh, railroad, not ties, but the railroad bars, railroad rails. Mm-hmm. you know that's, It's a one-off invention that was really brilliant, but it had no real application. Not yet. It was just too early. I saw an uh, image of this and I'm hoping when we go to Egypt next year, I'm going to be able to see it in one of the museums. There's a, um, an ornate vase, and I say vase instead of vase, because it's so beautiful, it deserves the title, vase. Vase. And it is carved out of one of the hardest rocks known to man. It's a volcanic rock, it's thin, and it's fluted, and it, it's wider at the base, it goes inwards and then outwards at the, at the rim. And it is just stunningly beautiful. But how does anyone carve it? You can't carve a rock unless you have grit that's harder than the rock and the Egyptians had limestone. Hmm. They had a little bit of carborundum, which is really hard, but even that's not as hard as this stuff is. And so, no one's actually certain how they made this, and it would be hard to make today using a you know, modern careful machine because it's so precise and so elegant, and it is a real mystery. And so, little one-off things like that pop up in the archaeological record, and you say, what is that? But then you get a steam engine, and then you get something like Stonehenge which is one of my favorite ancient places. Actually, I, I've been there. Oh, yeah? On my, sec, my second trip to England for CMI, uh, where I knew we were going to drive from Dover along the south coast to Southampton. And I said, hey, we're going past the, the Salisbury Plain near in Wiltshire. Yeah. And Philip Bell, our CMI speaker over there, he's like, oh, yeah, that, that's got Stonehenge. Just like, and we're stopping there? He's like, oh, I never thought about it. It's like, why not? He goes, well, I've never been there. It's like, really? Well, that's funny because, you know, growing up in New York, I never went to any of the tourist places either. (laughs) So, he had never (laughs) been, to, even though he had driven by on the highway probably 50 times, he'd never actually stopped. For shame. For shame. So, we got to walk around Stonehenge and it was amazing. And then we went to Woodhenge, which is just to the northeast. And we saw a lot of the ancient working of the land. And those ancients, they changed a lot of things. They build giant ditches and causeways and palisades, and there are tombs, and there are giant standing stones, and it's really, really strange. And Stonehenge is sad because what we see today is manufactured. Let's, let's just say that the British government has... Mm. Um, lifted some of the stones up and poured concrete and put the stones back down. <laughs> oh, that is terrible. <laughs> well, they fell over. And in the 1960s, one of the stones fell over. And so, they concreted that one too. And the, the, the pie-shaped rocks with the two rocks up and then the one horizontal cross piece on top, right. most of those had to be lifted in place with a crane. <laughs> because by the 1800s, the thing had almost all fallen down. And so, they restored it, and rightly so. And it's, I'm glad they stood most of them up, and it's really cool. But it's, it's also sad to think that there's concrete holding some of these up. But these, these rocks of Stonehenge, these things are like 20 tons. Right. And the big ones, the sarsen stones, they came from like 15 miles away. They didn't have steam engines. They might not have even have the wheel. It doesn't even make sense. You,
0: you remember when we were discussing how big the distances could be in space or the scale of the mass and density of something like a star or yes. the the vastness between atoms and the space between. I mean, you it, it's weird and it's mind-boggling. When you're thinking about something like the weight of those stones and the fact that they were originally situated in such a way, it breaks the brain. It, the brain is saying, oh, they couldn't have been that heavy. It, <laughs> they, Oh, they must have just had a power tool. They must have had a crane. Uh, well, they didn't have a crane. Well, they must have had like a really good trebuchet. <laughs> Don't you know?
1: <laughs> aliens did it.
0: Uh, yeah, there's
1: got a few aliens around in those days. Oh, no. It was, it, was, it was giants. Giants, Bigfoot, you know. Cave trolls? No, this is just very smart people applying some pretty standard techniques. There, there's a guy. I, I watched his video. It's on YouTube. Um... It's called Forgotten Technology. And there's this guy in Michigan rebuilding Stonehenge single-handedly with no wheels. That is one of the most incredible things. He would pour a Stonehenge-sized rock and walk it across his yard with one hand by rotating it. And he'd have something underneath it. I don't know how, but he had something underneath it that would be just a little bit off-center. So it it was still almost balanced, but when you spun it around 180 degrees, it would move six inches. Right. And so, he'd just go whoop, 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 whoop. And he'd move this thing six inches at a time in the direction he wanted to go. And then when he wanted to stand the thing up, he would actually lift it in the air. He would pick this thing up. And the way he did it was he got it to rock and he put a board under it and he had all these buckets of concrete and he he'd set them on one end of it and it would tilt and he would stick a board under it. And then he'd walk all the buckets of concrete to the other end again until it tilted again. And here goes – I think he's using two-by-fours or four-by-fours. And so, bink, 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 bink. Every time he did that, it would go up a couple inches. And he would lift, lift this thing up like eight feet in the air. And he'd dig a hole at one end. And he'd knock out a support. And the thing would fall into the hole and stand up. That's ah! awesome. <laughs> one guy, one-handed, moving stonehenge-sized blocks. Now, that's not 15 miles. And he pour concrete foundations that he could move his stones along the concrete. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the blue stones come from whales. That's not close. There's other stones that come from another part in Wales. In fact, the Pem- Pembrokeshire, which is on the, the western part of Wales, they move some stones a long way. And as we now know, we didn't know it before, but as we now know, there's some astronomical things about Stonehenge. Astronomical? Like if you're, in, if you're standing in the middle of the ring at sunrise on a summer solstice, the longest day of the year, sunrise will happen above what's called the heel stone. It's a stone, it's, it's a kind of rough cut stone. It's outside the circle to the northeast and the sun will rise right over that stone. So this is an astronomical observatory. Interesting. Or maybe it's a religious edifice that was based on astronomical principles. We have no right. idea what they did with this thing or why. <laughs> that is so amazing. All we know is it's really old. I mean, on the edge of human civilization old, pre-civilization even. You know, people first getting to England, and it's old. And when the people we now call the English got to England… This was already there. Oh, it had been there for two or 3,000 years. Yeah. Crazy old. But that's nothing. That's nothing compared to my favorite archaeological site in the world. It's a place called Gobekli Tepe. Uh, Lita Kaziner and I wrote an article about this on creation.com a long time ago now. It's one of the first ones we wrote together, and she's probably been here 10 years, so I'm not sure how long ago we wrote this, but it's, mm-hmm. it's this archaeological site. And if you go to Turkey, Turkey's very mountainous, but Syria is not. And if you go to the southern edge of Turkey on the border with Syria, on the very last hill, so north of that is Armenia, and you know uh, the mountains of Ararat are north if you go through all these mountains, you get to the very last hill and you're looking down on this flat plain called Mesopotamia. And somebody built something much bigger than Stonehenge. They didn't move the rocks as far, only maybe 200 meters, but they're T-shaped and they have animals carved on them in 3D. And the animals are animals that don't live there today, like wading birds and crocodiles. This is a very dry area today. So whoever built this, they built it during a different climatic cycle. And there's like 200 pillars. 10 to 20 tons each. 200 of them. And they're in 20 different circles. And they've only uncovered maybe 2% of the whole site. Wow. They're doing—they're they're slow walking it because they want future generations of archaeologists with better technology to uncover more. But what they've uncovered... Well, that's a good idea. It's brilliant. But what they've uncovered, I mean, this is... There's no evidence of writing. There's no evidence of of agriculture. This is the earliest man possible. This is Neolithic. Neolithic means new stone age. This is before the Iron Age, before the Copper Age. This is as early as you can get. And there aren't any industrialized areas. There aren't any major civilizations. They thought that at this point in time, people were hunter-gatherers. There's no farming yet. This is so early. How on earth did people who... Didn't have farms, have enough food to get a bunch of people to go over here and build this gigantic site. It would have taken hundreds of people. How do you feed those people? You can't do it in hunter-gatherer situation. Right. Remember we talked, uh, talked about um, Neanderthals and the fact that if you didn't get enough food in September, you would be dead before May. Food was a massive problem back then. Before you know, the the reason farming is so cool is because one guy can grow more food than he can eat. And as soon as you have a surplus of food, you can release people in the population for specialized roles like priests and, and kings and things like that. If one person can't grow more food than he can eat, you have no technology, you have no civilization.
0: Rob, I have a question. I'm just thinking yeah. about Gobekli Tepe. This is the kind of archaeological dig where it helps to be reminded
1: how do, how do these structures get buried? you know we were thinking about uh, it. <laughs> it this one this one was deliberately buried what really someone during the stone age after it was built buried in dirt which means it's completely okay, so preserved that is unusual it was not exposed to a lot of weather because someone buried it on purpose and we don't know who and we don't know when and we don't know why
0: that is incredible because you'd have thought that You would have said that there was some sort of like dust storms that happened over a few centuries, that there were flash floods in the area and erosions that they were known for getting hit by hurricanes and tornadoes to cover it up with so much dirt. And you look at the thing and it's clearly absolutely buried and yeah, getting excavated.
1: What's even stranger Mm. is, is underneath farmland. It's underneath farmland. And the farmers for centuries had been, they, they been piling up rocks they found on the surface like farmers do. They move rock and they have these rock piles. And some people have been chipping away at the tops of some of these, these monuments oh, thinking no. they were natural rocks. And so, you can see like pick marks and that they, oh, just, but, but this, this site is even more amazing because not only is it the world's earliest major archaeological site, it's just northeast of a town called I can't, it's S with a little cedilla under it. I don't know how to say it in Turkish, but it's mm-hmm. San Lirfa. In ancient times, it was called Urfa. And now I'm going to get onto my little soapbox here. Okay. I don't think that Abraham lived in Southeast Mesopotamia in ancient Ur. There's nothing in the Bible that points in that direction. Everything points to Northwest Syria. Okay. And there's a town here named Urfa. And this Gobekli Tepe. If you're standing there, you can look down. It's within eyesight on a clear day of one of the first major ancient villages that's important in the Bible after the flood. Wow. Where did Abraham come from? Haran.
0: He could have potentially visited Gobekli Tepe, at least. He had, uh, grant you he didn't live there. Well,
1: no, it was probably buried by then. Okay. But wow. he, he stopped in Haran. That's where Terah died. From Haran, he went south to Israel. When he sent his servant, you know, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you'll find a wife for my son. Right. He went up to Haran. When Jacob fled his brother, he went to Haran. Padan Aram is this area. And this site is within visual eyesight of the world's oldest archaeological structure that someone deliberately buried at some unknown time in the past.
0: <laughs> that is so awesome.
1: And it's right near a town called Urfa. And this is also the Chaldean territory. Because even though the Chaldeans started the Neo-Babylonian Empire with Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible calls him a Chaldean all the time, that's not their original homeland. They didn't move into Southeast Mesopotamia until after the time of King Solomon. And Abraham's thousand years earlier than that. They lived up in Northwest Syria. And this is, Haran is amazing because one of the major branches of the Euphrates As the Euphrates goes west and it curves around north into Turkey, there's a branch that goes due north, right towards Haran. And there's these two um, arms of mountains that come south, almost like someone wrapping their arms around a village. And there's this well-watered green spot. You can see it from space because of all the agriculture they have. There's a green spot in the middle of this deserty area. Two arms wrapping around this place and Haran's in the middle and Gobekli Tepe would be at the head. So, I am absolutely intrigued by this location. I can't wait for them to dig more up because I don't know what they're going to discover.
0: So, on an example of the T-shaped stones there at Gobekli Tepe, there's carvings of the various animals mm-hmm. and some of them, just to me, resemble dinosaurs.
1: Is well, that yeah, a confirmed the, thing or not? No, they call this one a fox, but it sure does look like a duckbill dinosaur to me. Considering other ones are very lifelike, the birds you can tell, the alligators you can tell, this one doesn't look like a fox, but they say it's a fox. Yeah. So how come this one is such a bad fox and this is such a good bird? Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I mean, this, this one could be a dog. I wouldn't have said a fox, but it looks more like a T-Rex sort of lizard. Uh, uh, all, all
1: I can say is that in future generations, when we uncover the other 98% of the site, we're going to know a lot more.
0: It's incredible that so much of it is still unknown. Oh, that's killing me. I want to know the rest of the story.
1: (laughs) It's like ancient Egypt. You know, ground penetrating radar and satellite measurements tell us about 90% or more of ancient Egypt is still under the sand. Oh, including pyramids, giant pyramids. Incredible. Under the sand. So, yeah, we got to wait. It hurts to wait.
0: Mm. Okay. And you wanted to get to. Antikythera.
1: Yes. Yeah, the, uh, this whole conversation was really driving. We are just talking about my favorite archaeological site. This is my favorite uh, archaeological artifact from the ancient world. It's probably 100, 200 BC. That's all we know. We don't know when it was built. We don't know where it was built. We don't know who it was going to. We just know that in 1901, some sponge divers off of a little teeny island called Antikythera. And if you look on a map and you find Crete and you look at where the Peloponnesus is, in between Crete and the Peloponnesus is a little teeny dot. That's Antikythera. And these sponge divers are working in 150 feet of water. Dude, man, I don't scuba dive down to 150 feet using modern equipment. (laughs) I mean, you can, but then you have to hang out on the line for half an hour to degas at 30 feet. And that's boring. I don't want to go down 100 feet. 150 feet, because then you have to you have to decompress. But these guys, they're probably working in these uh, those old fashioned diving suits with the lead feet and a diving bell mm-hmm. helmet, right? Because no other way to get down that deep. Which means they're man the amount of pressure they would have had to put in that hose for that guy to keep breathing at that depth. This is incredible. These guys are crazy, and they found an ancient shipwreck, and they start pulling pieces up, and they found this block this concretion of rusted stuff and eventually somebody noticed that hey I think that's a gear and after now 119 years of studying this we figured out what it is and how it works and how many gears it had and when it was built and using modern uh, imaging technology like x-ray tomography and, and high precision x-rays and things like that they, uh, they found writing on it
0: awesome it also looks like a fascinating piece of technology. It's just nice to look at.
1: Yeah, I want to build one so bad. I want to have like a like a homeschool. You know, buy this box of pieces and you can build one yourself and have all these brass gears in it and stuff. But you can't buy these brass gears off the shelf. Mm. None of this is normal. There, there's a gear, a big gear. It's five and a half inches wide. It's got 223 teeth. What? Why, why isn't it four? Why isn't it, you know, an interval of two or an even number or, or 223? <laughs> Who thought of that? And how do they make a round wheel five and a half inches in diameter out of brass that long ago? The other gears are a lot smaller. It looks like they took a brass bar and cut it. And so a lot of the gears have the same diameter. So, they had a bar that they cut, ding, 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 to make, and then they filed the the teeth out in triangles to make gears, Mm, 37 gears. And they're arranged so you could, if you had attached a, a stick to some of these gears and put the moon on the end of the stick, it would rotate. And there's a calendar on this. So, you could say, oh, I want to know where the moon will be three years from now on the third Thursday in February. Turn, 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 turn. Oh, it'll be right here at nine o'clock at night. And this will be the phase. Wow. And the sun. And apparently add a couple accessory gears. And I think they know where they go. All the visible planets. Wow. (laughs) Uh, what? Yeah. (laughs) We would not have anything this sophisticated until the 1300s in Europe.
0: One of the things about ancient technologies that boggles my mind is that, that that we would have this technology, but then it would seem like all the other technologies that should come with it in the modern era are absent. So, it makes you
1: wonder what other technologies we just don't know about that they had. You know what's missing from this? What? Time. It's not a clock. It's a calculator. Right. Exactly. Of course. They didn't have our concept of time. (laughs) Oh, wow. The Greek world, time was cyclical and chaotic. They didn't have this linear progression of you know one second, two second, three second, four seconds, even though the Babylonians talked about seconds. They, they did not have this idea that we have today where you need to precisely measure time at this point and precisely measure time at some other point, and now you have much time is in between. They weren't thinking that. This is just a calculator. It's not a clock. So, even though it has a calendar on it, and the days of the month are written on this thing. And, so, and based on the days of the month, they think they can probably guess where this thing was manufactured, probably on the island of Rhodes, not on the island of Sicily, and not in Corinth because it uses the Rhodian calendar or something like that. Wow. And we wonder maybe if Hipparchus of Rhodes, a famous uh, Greek philosopher about 200 BC-ish, second century BC, if he had some influence on this because he was tracking the moon, and he had figured out that when the moon was closer, it moved faster through the sky, and when the moon was further away, it moved more slowly through the sky. Dude, man. Wow. The moon's orbit is almost circular. Perigree and apogee for the moon are not that different, but they're different enough that he actually calculated how the difference between the the speed of the moon through the heavens and the Antikythera mechanism does this too not all the gears are round oh and the little moon wow. the little moon thing speeds up and slows down based on the orbit that actually the elliptical orbit of the i don't even know if he knew it was an ellipse or not it didn't matter because he just knew it sped up and slowed down this far apart and there are planetary gears in this thing a planetary wow. gears you know take a gear and it's got the teeth on the outside right no, no. Make yeah. a ring and put the teeth on the inside of the ring and then put gears inside that. Gears within gears, not gears outside of gears. And part of the planetary gear system is, is the moon thing. Mm. This is, I mean, mouth hang open. Where on earth it did is. this come from? We don't have any other examples, but it wasn't made out of whole cloth. This thing had to have predecessors. It had, there had to be a school of thought that led to this and people working and working and working and working until they finally got it. Or they had a genius like Harrison and his clocks. I mean, we talked about longitude and Harrison invented a clock that no one else had ever invented before, but clocks already in, existed. He just added like a hundred brand new inventions that made a clock so accurate, it wouldn't get messed up if you put it on a ship. So, there was a clock precedence, but he just like leapt over everybody and, and threw technology at the world that the world had never seen. This could be that, like some super brainiac guy sits down one day and says, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to invent this this machine where I can predict the – oh, you can also predict eclipses <laughs> in the future. <laughs> wow. I want one of these so bad. Right. <laughs> hey, listeners, if anyone is a uh, mechanically inclined, why don't you make an anti antikythera mechanism for about 32 degrees north? Anyway.
0: So, Rob, one of the things that I ask myself, because I don't understand any of these things, is how is it that something like that could come into the world and be lost for good? Because it just seems like we are so conditioned with modern technology that it gets... Proliferated. It is worldwide. It is available in every town and country. And then something like this comes along. Actually, there was a, a news story that my friend TJ from my other podcast, uh, Hi Fi, if you haven't checked that out, it's also on Night Owl. Yes, yes. He shared with me earlier today. Old television kept wiping out villages' broadband for 18 months. (laughs) An entire village lost its broadband at the same time every day for 18 months, and now we know why. And it's funny that technologies can come and go and be forgotten like that, but served its time and go, and then we kind of forget how did it even work, because we've gone on to something else.
1: Aren't you going to tell the audience why they were losing it? You got it. You got to You can't leave them hanging. Why were they They're yes, I'll, I'll they're Wi-Fi? <laughs> yes, it says
0: a crack team of engineers turned detectives have become heroes in the village of I. Sorry, I can't pronounce this one. Aberhosen, Aberhosen. I'm not. I'm not going to try. All right. In the village, after finally finding the source of the problem, according to the press release uh, from Openreach, the company that runs the UK's digital network that published this week. Uh, Staff had visited the village repeatedly and found no fault with the network. They even replaced cables in the area to try to solve the problem, but to no avail. After carrying out a plethora of tests, engineers had a theory that the problem could be caused by a phenomenon called single high-level impulse noise in which an appliance emits (laughs) electrical interference that impacts broadband connectivity. Engineers used a device called a spectrum analyzer and walked up and down the village in the torrential rain at 6 a.m. to see if they could locate an electrical noise. And at 7 a.m., like clockwork, the device picked up a large burst of electrical interference in the village. (laughs) By the original. That is so unexpected. (laughs) it's just fascinating. How do these things come and go and why do we lose these things? So
1: someone was turning their television on at six o'clock every morning and that's what was causing it?
0: It says anything with electrical... No, it does not indicate that there was someone who... Well, let me see here. Jones said the resident was... Oh, yes. Yes, the source of the electrical noise was traced to the property in the village. It turned out that at 7 a.m. every morning, the occupant would switch on their old TV, which would, in <laughs> turn, knock out broadband on the entire village. <laughs> Jones said the, the resident was mortified by the news.
1: I bet the town got together and bought him a new TV. Yes, The Parks Observatory in Australia is a famous radio telescope, and for over a decade, they were um, analyzing this particular and peculiar radio signal, and there were papers written about it, and discussions at scientific conferences, and on and on and on and on, and it turned out it was coming from the microwave in the staff room. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Ancient man versus modern man. Yeah, good luck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Grandfather, why didn't you tell us? So, you know, the the last piece of of super cool technology that I could think of off the top of my head Mm -hmm. was probably the Great Pyramids of Giza. Mm. People have been speculating how these things are built for a long time. Well, I think we know how. I, I don't know if I'll be able to find it again, but I watched a documentary on this. And if you can put together a logical series of steps that answers every problem in order, and in the end, you come to a completed pyramid... You probably got it right. And these, these uh, architects and surveyors and engineers and Brainiac people, they said, okay, we need this many blocks at this rate. How do we deliver them? Oh, we put on this many floats. They carved upstream at this location. They float down to the dock, which we now know is right here. And then we have to move them from here up to there at this rate. And then we have to build this thing. And you can't have an external ramp because the ramp would have more volume than the pyramid. But if you build the ramp up to the third or fourth course, and here's the footprint of where the ramp was. Oh, look at that. And, and so you can get the first three courses built, and then you use the pyramid for a ramp. They said there's an internal ramp in this thing. It's at this slope. It goes from corner to corner to corner to corner, gets smaller and smaller as it goes up. And there was an inside ramp in the pyramid. And they had the entire process worked out to where... I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, we're done. That's how they did it. it. And if it wasn't exactly that, it was a variation on that theme because no other radical idea is going to be able to explain it in a logical order. But awesome. the pyramid of Khufu, of Khafre of Menkaure there's probably a hundred pyramids in Egypt of various sizes and qualities. And, and we can actually look at them in order and see them improving their technology. The earliest ones were mud bricks. In fact, the earliest ones were um, were stepped. They go up. They, they, they build a platform and they build a platform on top of a platform and a platform on top of a platform. And so, it's these giant steps like a, like a, like a, a wedding cake. And then there's one that's bent. It, it goes up and then they finish it off at a an narrower angle, a less steep angle. Probably as they were trying to build this thing too steeply, um, it was becoming unstable. And so, they changed the angle and made the, the top of it squat, not as tall as it would have been or else the whole thing probably would have collapsed. Oh, wow. But, but when you look at a pyramid... They're approximately the angle that dry sand forms if you pour sand in a pile. Hmm. Because when you zoom out to the size of the world, a pyramid is just a pile of blocks that act like sand. Yeah. Sand is little square blocks, right? Well, same thing with the pyramid. So, you can't overcome gravity and normal physics because a giant block in a pyramid might as well be a, a grain of sand if you have so many millions of them piled up together. And no, these were not concrete that were poured in place. We know where they came from. Uh, no, it did not take aliens to be able to help them do this. Yes, they are aligned with the stars. Yes, they're almost perfectly aligned with the heavens at some earlier point in time, because we know the precession of the equinoxes, that the stars are in, aren't always in the same place, and the North Star is not always over the North Pole, etc., etc., etc. It just takes <laughs> man's ingenuity. In fact, we even know how they move them because they drew pictures of how they move them. They have a team of guys dragging a block on sand. And there's one guy with a water jug who's pouring water in front of the block. And through experimentation, we now know if you put a little bit of water, it lubricates the block and it's a million times, I'm overemphasizing, it's a lot easier to pull (laughs) too much water and it gums everything up and you can't pull it at all but if you get that balance and you just hydrate the grains just right, it's slick and and you just slide the block like it's on wheels. They didn't have wheels. They slid these things using a team of men, lots of men. We also know that wow. wow, these people weren't slaves. We see their the we've uncovered where they lived, the villages for the workmen. We know how many people were there, where they slept, how much they ate. They were well fed. They were taken care of. We see um the cemeteries for these people, and they have broken bones that were set and healed, etc., etc. They were they were well taken care of. Now, to be an Egyptian, though, if you're not the pharaoh, you are a slave. If you think about it that way, mm. everything in the entire country was geared for the Pharaoh's afterlife only. Not by anybody else's, maybe a little bit of other people, but really it's it's the pharaoh. Everything was geared right. The whole country, the religious worship was this one man. You didn't have freedom of thought and expression, probably didn't have freedom of movement. You probably didn't have a choice of occupation. So it's a very different sort of a world. Yeah. And yet together they built things that no modern society could build because we wouldn't be that cohesive. We'd never spend that much money building a pyramid. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. That's my spiel on ancient technology. There's a whole lot more that we could have gone to, but I just pick those couple of examples because they're just so cool. And I think the Antikythera mechanism is icing on the cake. Yes.
0: Excellent. Wonderful stuff. Ah, I love this episode. Good coverage there, Rob. I like that. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for joining us too. If you're listening to this, it is always fabulous to have you listening along. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or a family member. I know you've got people who enjoy ancient technologies. Maybe they've discussed them with you before, so share it with them. And if you want to dig deeper into these topics...
1: In fact, listener, we might depend upon people sharing these episodes because word of mouth is a great way to get an audience to grow. So we would really appreciate it if you did so.
0: Yeah. And if you want to dig deeper into these topics, you can also find the links to the stuff that we discussed and Rob brought up in the show notes on our website. They're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 29. It's just that easy. Uh, The show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. And you should also check out biblicalgenetics.com. This is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox.